the world we know is changing. I'm Moira Gunn, and welcome to Biotech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, why use one AI approach when you can use 25? Dr. Ben Thomas and Dermot Tierney from Amply Discovery tell us how they look for new drugs. Well, let's just say differently. And now, Dr. Ben Thomas and Dermot Tierney from Amply Discovery. Ben and Dermot, welcome to the program. Hi there. Good to be here. Hi, Maura. Nice to be here. Now, there are about four different parts to this story, which, when they come together, make it a very interesting story indeed. So let's start here. Now, we all know that scientists all over the world, everywhere, are creating databases of DNA and RNA and everything that might be measured about a molecule. Would it be fair to say that one of your starting points is that you scrape from these small databases of reputable scientists everywhere? Yeah, I think that's sort of the core of our our business is since probably the turn of the millennium, there's been um, an explosion in capturing all life in a digital form. So that could be from a sort of individual sort of animal all the way up to entire uh, environments. So this process of sort of genomics, it tends to be called, and the omics flag, it turned biology from a sort of soft and squishy thing into more of a digital thing. So scientists were going out and rather than getting a real plant, they were sort of digitizing a plant or digitizing nature. And what's happened is, as with a a lot of um, science and technology generally, this sort of started to generate huge amounts of data about various things on the planet on which we live. So a bit like, you know, the rainforest for real is a great resource to go into to look for stuff that can be helpful for human beings. This digital resource is sort of like it's a new sort of rainforest, a new area that we can explore with uh, technology. Now, you take all these databases and bring them into Ampli. And what do you do with them then? So this process of taking sort of digital data from, let's say, an animal or a plant, what you typically do in biology is this data is basically has a series of sort of codes in it that are are an instruction manual that makes that living being what it is. So it could be the way it looks and also the chemicals that it produces and all that sort of stuff. They're all encoded inside this sort of uh, library that you can extract from it, this digital library. So for us, Essentially, we have a starting point where, like a lot of people who work in this field, is we know what a lot of stuff looks like already because we've done the sort of hard work. So we've got like a reference manual of um, what stuff tends to look like in this data. So a starting point for a lot of the, the discipline of bioinformatics is looking at what we know and then taking something new and then trying to match those two things together. So a lot of, we sort of tend to say that bioinformatics or the discipline of bioinformatics is sort of almost like pattern matching. So that's a sort of starting point. Start with something you don't know and you know what stuff tends to look like and then you try to annotate that data. You try to understand your data by connecting those two things together. And do you take these databases and keep them all separate or do you try to put them into one big one at Ampli? So that kind of depends. Um, So you can imagine um, if you talk about, say, like every individual creature or plant has its own particular genome, for example. So if you were interested in looking at a particular type of plant, you might compile together all of the genomes of the different particular types of species of that plant. But because of the way we collect data, 
quite often we can collect data in different ways. So you might be looking at your data in the sense of I'm taking data from a single animal, but you might also take data from, let's say, the stomach of an animal over a period of time. So how is that stomach changing over zero to eight hours or that sort of thing? So there's a lot of flexibility in in where you get this data for, either temporarily or which animals you look at or which groups of animals. So it's up to you how you know how you group that data together really. Now the whole purpose that we're talking about today is the discovery of new drugs. How do you go from these databases to actually looking for a new drug? It's a good question. I think if you look at the history of how human beings have tended to find really useful things, a lot of useful stuff that we've found has been found in nature. So the most famous story is the discovery of penicillin, which happened by chance because Alexander Fleming left a, a Petri dish on his windowsill and he noticed that the fungus on it was had a killing zone around it, which was killing bacteria on it. And from there, we got penicillin, which arguably has saved more lives in human history than any other drug. So the connection between finding something in nature and exploiting something useful from it is not new. What is new is translating that and sort of trying to take a shortcut into you don't necessarily need a real fungus or plant or animal. You can have a digital version of it. And then you can use technology as a means of um, bio-mining that digital data to try and find useful useful stuff. Now, when we're talking today's bio-mining, we're usually talking about artificial intelligence. We're talking about building queries to query the data that we have. Um, you do more than just develop a query. You have a lot of different kinds of queries, right? Yeah, I mean, this kind of leads on from that is the the discipline we talked about bioinformatics. This is really a sort of form of, like I said, pattern matching. So it's like we know what stuff tends to look like, so we can find more stuff that looks like stuff we know. So pattern to pattern. Pattern to pattern. Now that's great, and in, in indeed, an entire sort of entire industries are founded on this principle and technology and all the rest of it. Where we were interested in looking at at AI is actually changing that question slightly, which is we would like useful things to do good stuff, but we want to find stuff that doesn't necessarily look like stuff we know. And that's quite a complicated question. So you, you want good, you want it to do a particular function, but it might not look like anything you've ever seen before. So that particular sort of problem was the problem that we felt that AI, machine learning, um, this sort of new frontier of technology would be good at answering that question. I suppose it's a way of thinking a bit like, how do you know what makes a good film? That you could read a thousand textbooks on make, what makes a good film, and you could probably make a workman-like reasonably good film. But we get films that come out all the time that break the rules, which are excellent. So how, how do you break the rules to still get something excellent? And that's really where we wanted to leverage the AI. So if I could say it a different way, we do have a number of drugs, and they work very well for what they do. There's no point in looking for the same drug in many different places because we have the drug. We're looking for new opportunities that might operate in different ways or better ways. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, the starting point for a lot of what we did was um, looking at antibiotics. And I, I think most people are aware now, sort of existentially from the news and all the rest of it, is we have a bit of a problem is that our antibiotics aren't working 
as well as they used to. We get new disease threats turning up all the time, and increasingly they're resistant to the antibiotics that we have. And what we tended to do with antibiotics is we had a lot of good ones that we found quite a long time ago, and we were sort of gluing different bits on the side of them to sort of get as much use out of them as we possibly could. But we're sort of reaching a stage where the disease threats are coming thick and fast, and we need to look at um, different ways of killing these sort of novel um, disease threats. Um, so, I mean, it's a very obvious example, but you can see the havoc that COVID wreaked. And, you know, that's one particular pathogen. You could have a conveyor belt of these things. So finding um, new and effective weapons to kill um, these disease threats means that we have to rapidly speed up our discovery chain. And we also have to start leveraging sort of new technologies like AI to sort of um, speed up and improve finding these uh, new molecules that can help stop these these threats. So how do you look at what would appear to be an innocent plant? How do you look at its capabilities somewhere in there in its structure that could kill a bacteria, for example? Yeah, so you you find... Um, with a with a plant, for example, that like all the different various parts of the plant might be producing different um, chemicals to try and stop it being colonized by nasty stuff, like you know being taken over by other plants or uh, fungi or whatever, or bugs, insects, or bugs. Absolutely, they don't want parasite. They want things gnawing on their leaves. They don't. So it's pretty much the same starting point that we've often started from with stuff like, I don't know, aloe vera and stuff like that is obviously plants contain a lot of stuff that's really useful for human beings. So if you looked at a particular type of um, plant, let's say, I don't know, finola or something like that, it's like there's enough narrative there that we know there must be good stuff in it. So you can go about that in different ways. You could sort of mash the plant up in a sort of test tube and try smearing it on things. And of course, that's how a lot of great discoveries have come about from mashing stuff up and smearing it on things. So what we do is we sort of shortcut that slightly. And rather than mash up a real plant or a real animal or, or anything like that, is we're looking at a digital version of it. And then we're applying AI to it to say, is there anything useful in here that we might have missed or that is doing a useful job that we think we can exploit. And it's not really that much different to what human beings have always done. It's just adding this sort of layer of technology over the top of it. Now, I understand you just haven't built one super inquisition program. In fact, you've got some two dozen different query programs that ask questions in different ways. What is that about? Well, I think we're no different from other people who work in AI is that certain types of AI do certain things very well. So if you're looking at generating art with AI, there are a lot of different choices there, and they, they produce different sorts of artwork. Some you might like, some you might not like. And as with sort of AI or the machine learning and this new frontier, there's an awful lot of different ways of doing it. So when I started sort of developing the system, it was often said, well, you, you sort of need to pick one and focus on it. But actually, what I found in the end was the most uh, useful thing was to actually do them all. Um, uh, so every particular type of AI um, approach, um, it can be good at one thing, but it might not be quite as good as a, another. So one of the questions is you could either pick one, one that does the best possible job in the area that you want to do it, or you can combine multiple different approaches together. And that's really the approach that we took, which is just to sort of rather than select from all of the different types of ways you can do machine learning and AI, is why don't we do all of them? <laughs> uh, so that's where, where we ended up. And as I understand it, one of them uh, comes from your background in finance and predictive modeling. You actually use 
some of of that work here? Yeah, it was a long time ago. I worked in asset management in the sort of early noughties. And one of the interesting things there was there was a lot of tension between what you would call a typical fund manager, somebody who would sit and look at the market and what was moving up and down and then make a sort of instinctive human choice on what to buy. And then we had a team of quantitative mathematical people who tried to build computer systems to predict what the market was going to do and then put trades on completely without human intervention. And early in the noughties, what was interesting was that some of the humans could be outperformed by the the AI, but some of the humans tended to have an instinctive knack to process screens of data and make what seemed like a bad call, but could actually make an enormous amount of money from a stock moving in a direction you might not expect. So that's always, I think, been a tension in in the use of computers to help people, especially in, again, going back to this sort of art or music side of things, is it can get so far, but quite often this technology almost needs to, um, this humanistic step to review what it's producing and to sort of still provide some sort of human input into the decision-making process. So while you decided to choose all of these approaches, <laughs> I guess they all come up with different analysis of the same databases. Then you put the human in? So ultimately, we we sort of presented the data that ultimately these AIs were looking at. So say we were, again, looking at like a block of data from a plant or something. What we tried to do was rather than let the computer make a final decision of it, on if it had found something new and interesting, was like, again, like a sort of fund manager analogy, was to present that in a sort of dashboard view for a human being, and then basically go to the human being for the final choice to reduce maybe a list of a few thousand down to a few hundred things that looked interesting by gut instinct. And that's really the cornerstone to how the entire sort of flow works for Ampli. So you take a lump of digital data, you process it with all this sort of clever AI-related stuff, and then we present it on a screen, a bit like a stock-picking screen, for a human being to say, hmm, that's very interesting. Maybe this said it was good, but that said it was bad, or they all said it was good, or whatever. It doesn't really matter. But yes, that looks interesting, or no, I'm less interested in that. So that's really joining the two things together, the AI and a more sort of humanistic uh, approach. Well, you have AI and you've got all this digital and you've got humans, but you always got biology. And uh, that you know you have to deal with, no matter what the computer says, uh, which brings us to a breakthrough that uh, breakthrough for you that you observed at St. George's Hospital in London. What did you observe and why was it so crucial to looking for new drugs? Yeah, and I think if if that's all we'd done and we'd stopped there, uh, there was some value to that because, indeed, that's the entire field of bioinformatics is you sort of do some stuff and then you write a paper and it's got beautiful pictures in it and you're sort of explaining the data. But I was more interested in doing something practical with the data. And one of the things that uh, a technology that became uh, open to us was that you could effectively print molecules out extremely economically. Um, so this is a technology that lets you take various types of small molecules, for example, like a peptide or other small molecules, and essentially create them from scratch without needing a real plant or animal. So a bit like um, if you imagine like an inkjet printer has uh, like different ink canisters of different colors, 
it's basically a similar concept, except the ink canisters have different subcomponents of a molecule, and it can stitch them together for you and create it for real. Uh, and in our particular case, it could create like little dots of compounds on pieces of paper. So you could hold a piece of paper in your hand, and it might have a hundred different actual real uh, chemical compounds on on it. So the critical thing about that is you've jumped out of a digital domain to actually something that's real and it's possible to test, to check whether what you think it might do, whether it will do it for real. So the computer said it would do it. Now you can you can print it all out, all the biology out, basically on a piece of paper, and you can test in the lab, does it do it? Yeah. And that's the confirmation. Absolutely. So that's really the core. Well, and the other important part about that is that's not only the core of what we do, but you can actually tell the AI after a real human being has tested it, whether it got it right or not. And that's also important as well, because that improves how well it can predict uh, things in the in the future. And it can also learn a bit better what it is you're actually interested in finding and what you're less interested in finding. So your prepared database, if you will, gets even better. Yeah, absolutely. And if, you know, you could say if you started with a particular type of plant and you did this once and you, you got some good stuff and you got some bad stuff, you could go back, you could tell the AI, okay, this worked well, this worked less well, and now we're going to look at this other plant in a similar species. And then you could you could have another look and in, you know, and it should be better because it, the AI has learnt uh, what's good and what's bad. And that's really the, the sort of backbone of a lot of what we've done as a company is we've tried to not just have sort of this computer bit, is we've also tried to put the messy lab bit and then join the two together really, really closely. So With the brilliant human bit. With the brilliant human bit, yeah. So, you know, human beings are critical to this uh, and they can work in concert with, with AI. It doesn't necess- It's not necessarily threatening the humans here. Both of these things are additive to this process. It makes the entire process stronger. Now, I would imagine this is very valuable to, uh, to all companies that develop drugs. Uh, how do you work with them? It's best to think of us as a discovery studio. We're at the coalface using the platform that Ben has described to essentially mine and identify, discover these new molecules. We take that molecule, we prove that it does what we, what we think it does, and then we will license that to a larger company. Um, and so licensing is a very common model in biotech at the moment where there are a lot of very, very small biotech companies that develop early stage technologies. And then these are passed on, essentially handed to other larger companies that have slightly deeper pockets um, for clinical trials and, and more advanced um, development down what is quite a long and, and very, very expensive uh, pathway to take a, a drug to market. Now, do these companies have an idea of what they're looking for? Or are you generating a number of, of, of opportunities here, candidates, uh, that you think they might? How does this work? Who, who approaches who? So, so in the stage that we're at, we would do a lot of the approaching. Um, we would approach the, the companies uh, with a, essentially a data pack, with a, a package of information, you know, demonstrating our data, demonstrating um, how our molecule works, uh, de- demonstrating the target that we're acting on. Within the context of what we do, a lot of our uh, work is is novel. It's 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 unique, 
And so um, we're sort of approaching companies with things that maybe they didn't know that they that they needed, but they do. It fits into a particular space or a particular disease area. Um, so there are there are certain companies that we will target based on the disease areas that we work on. So there will be companies that will have a large focus on cancer. There will be companies that will have a large focus on metabolic diseases like diabetes. There will be some companies, a smaller number of companies that will focus on infectious diseases. So we would target these these larger companies as potential downstream partners. Well, here's the real question. It's like you've, you've got some candidates here you think are effective. You can't just show them to the company without some kind of intellectual property protection. It's any molecule that we will advance to that preclinical validation stage is novel, which means that it's protectable. It's, it's unique. It can be patented. Well, thank you so much. I hope you come back and see us again. We will. Yeah. Good speak to you. How does tomorrow sound? <laughs> <laughs> CEO Dr. Ben Thomas and commercial officer Dermot Tierney are from Amply Discovery in Belfast, Northern Ireland. More information is available at amplydiscovery.com. That's Amply, A-M-P-L-Y, amplydiscovery.com. Listen to more biotech podcasts at biotechnation.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. Biotech Nation is a regular feature of the weekly public radio program, Tech Nation. Listen to the full show via podcast or on your local public radio station. For Biotech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn.